This is day 216 of our daily Bible reading. We'll be reading 1 Corinthians chapters 11 through 15. Lord God, as we enter into your word today, please enlighten us, Lord. We need your wisdom. We need your strength and your knowledge. We need your discernment. We need your courage. In these difficult, dark days, we know that times are coming soon where our faith will be tested, and we will need to rely on you more than we ever have. Lord, help us to see that now, while the time is not urgent, while the time is mostly peaceful, that, Lord, when we do get to that point, that we would run to you rather than run away from you, or panic, or be afraid. Help us to understand what it truly means to take refuge in you. Please bless the reading of your word today, in Jesus' name, amen. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions, just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her? For her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, 
and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols however you were led. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries, and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another, prophecy, and to another, the distinguishing of spirits, to another, various kinds of tongues, and to another, the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as he wills. For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though there are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit 
we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, Because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. And if the ear says, Because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body, just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body, which seem to be weaker, are necessary. And those members of the body, which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healing, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, and I know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, 
does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love. Abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now I wish that all of you spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may receive edifying. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation, or of knowledge, or of prophecy, or of teaching? Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual things, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the spirit, and I will sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted 
say the amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you're saying. For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind, so that I may instruct others also, rather than ten thousand words in a tongue. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then tongues are a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart is disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all these things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, It should be by two, or at most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church, and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak in tongues. But all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you which also you received, 
in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man death came into the world, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all.
Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized from the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought, and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. But someone will say, How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool! That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, and another flesh of beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, 
and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Okay, we are in the deep end of the pool today. We went into some very heavy stuff. And there is some really important things that we need to talk about in today's reading. So beginning in chapter 11, the very first thing, which really should have been the last verse of chapter 10, but it is the first verse of chapter 11. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. So this is the second time that he said to imitate him. And why should we imitate him? Because he imitates Jesus Christ. And that should be reason enough. Random trivia, but we did not get the word of God in chapters and verses straight from these people. I hope we know that. We as believers, centuries ago, came together in a council and divided the Bible into chapters and verses so that it could be easier to read. But no, it was not given to us in this way. Paul's letter was a letter. And so you can imagine a letter you would get in the mail. Something like that. That's how it came. It wasn't necessarily he wrote it in verses and chapters. So I know some people don't ever think about that kind of stuff, but I just wanted to make sure we were clear about that. Now let's get into the good stuff here. So we have the very first thing that's mentioned is how one is supposed to appear in public worship. And so it mentions here that, and this is a controversial thing between different denominations, but the covering of the head. What does this symbolize? So it says here that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. So you see that hierarchy going on here. Now, it doesn't say that men are superior to women. It never says that. And this is not a scripture that affirms that men somehow have an advantage over women. Men and women are different, but they are equal. They have their unique roles to play and their responsibilities. And in this way, a man is the head of the woman. Not necessarily that he is her superior or that he is somehow to subjugate her. That simply is not what it says. But what it does say is that man was given authority by God to be over the woman because she is in many ways the weaker vessel, not only physically for the most part, but also because of the emotional nature that a woman has. It's not always as stable as a man's is. And so there is a reason why these things exist the way they are, because God designed it perfectly. 
Now, here's where the debate comes in. Should a woman wear something to cover her head in church? According to Paul, the answer is yes. But is that something that we should be doing today? Because if we took this very literally, it says here that a woman should cover her head in some fashion, either with like a hat, like they used to do, you know, about a century or so ago. All the women would have to cover their head when they go to church. Maybe not that far back, but around that time they were doing that. And a man should not be covering his head in church. Think about what we do in church today. At least in my church, what we do is it is not acceptable for a man to wear a cap in church. At least that you're not supposed to. And if you do wear a cap in a church, you must take it off as a sign of respect to God when you pray. Now, women in my church don't have to cover their head. So are we sinning in this way? And this one is, if we disagree on this one, it is not going to change the narrative of the Bible. This is one of those things that we can listen to our convictions on, obey the conscience that God gave us, and be obedient to what we think is right on this one. But many scholars and pastors believe that this was because of the cultural context. Back in the Middle East, in that time period, it was appropriate for a woman to cover up. As you see in today's world, too, how women still wear hijabs and so on and so forth. So a lot of that has not changed over the centuries. But what he's saying here is that because God created man first, man is the direct link between God and the woman, almost as if they were a mediator of some kind. But not only that, but because woman, according to this, was created for man, then that means that man is to be over the woman, and the woman is to be in subjection to the man. So this is just a hierarchy of authority. This is not to say that any gender is more superior than the other. Let's be clear about that. Simply put, because woman came from man's body, she was made for the sake of man. And God created man from the dust of the ground. So God created man for his sake. So you see that there's a hierarchy there. But it doesn't say anywhere, like we were talking about at the beginning here, that men are superior to women. Why? Because even though they are different, they are still interdependent. It means we need each other. We cannot exist without each other, not only biologically because of creating children and all that, but they complete the process. There is something in men that women have that we lack. Women are missing things that men have, and together when they are combined, when they become one flesh, that should be a complete person. That's how it was all supposed to be in the design. We are interdependent, and women are not inferior to men, according to this, because they give birth to all. And that is the advantage they have over men, and that's why they are not inferior in any way. Now, it says here that also men are not supposed to have long hair. I personally believe that too, but that's a conviction of mine. And women are supposed to have long hair. So that's another conviction of mine as well. 
but it's not going to be a deal breaker if we disagree on this, you know? But ultimately, we need to obey the conscience. And so what I'm trying to get at is that Paul is showing the cultural side of that day. I mean, it even says in here that women are not supposed to speak in church at all. Does that seem right to you in today's world? Imagine if that were to happen today. If a woman was not allowed to speak in church at all, I think we would have a mutiny on our hands. There's many that believe this is a cultural context that it no longer applies today, but again, some people say, no, the Bible's true, it's timeless, therefore its rules are timeless. So you be the judge, you talk to the Lord about it and see what you feel your conviction leads you to do. Then he goes into a really important topic, and that is the Lord's Supper, communion. It was reported to Paul that they were going about it all the wrong way. So before they would come together to take communion, they would have a love feast in connection to the Lord's Supper, during which they would gather as a fellowship and have a meal together, kind of like what we would do at church, right? A fellowship meal. And they would collect money for widows and orphans and so on and so forth. But then some people got greedy. It seems that some of the wealthier people in the church were not sharing their food, and they were being greedy. They were consuming it before the poor even showed up. So if that's your way of showing love to someone, you're doing it all the wrong way. And if that is the purpose of the love feast, and it's not being realized, that's why he says in verse 22, it's better for you to eat at home so that you do not cause judgment to be passed to you. And then he goes through something that we regularly quote for communion or the Lord's Supper, whatever you choose to call it. And so this is a nice summation of the importance of why we do communion as Protestant Reformed believers. This is not a sacrament that will cause you to be saved. This is not one that will consecrate your salvation. In fact, it's not even remotely attributed to causing salvation in you. But what it does do is it helps you to remember who you are in Christ. And more importantly, that we need to be constantly reflecting and looking ourselves in the mirror to see where we are spiritually. We really should be gauging where we stand on things because so often I think we lack self-awareness as a body of believers. We don't take the time to examine ourselves and see if there's any faults in us. And even worse, as a church, we don't repent enough or at all. And there's no wonder why we have the issues that we have. A friend of mine at church described it as a spiritual famine because the true believers within the church have failed to repent. And I think he's spot on. And this is the very purpose in which we take the Lord's Supper, to remember the sacrifice that Christ made for us, and not to let it be in vain but for it to be a way for us to acknowledge our sin before God, to be blameless in our ways, and to cause repentance in us. 
That's why it says very important things here, like in verse 28, is that we're supposed to examine ourselves. And if we do not judge ourselves rightly, then consequences may come. It says that some become weak or sick or even sleep, meaning death, because they didn't take communion seriously. I mean, there's something about that that we need to pay attention to. There's, it seems like it would be dangerous to take the Lord's Supper flippantly or in defiance of God's Word. So it says that we will be disciplined by God if we do not obey. And it's a means for him to correct us so that we are not judged like the rest of the world is. Chapter 12 describes the spiritual gifts. This is what the whole chapter is about. So as you can see, there are many different gifts out there. And this is not a full comprehensive list either. And I say that because... In other parts of Paul's writings, some of the spiritual gifts may vary. Think about in Romans chapter 12. There were several different spiritual gifts that are not mentioned here. For example, the spiritual gift of generosity with wealth. That's not listed here, but it is a spiritual gift. So don't take this as this is the only list of spiritual gifts that there are because Throughout the Bible, there are different ones, but this is a very strong list, nonetheless. And what he is also showing us in the second half of the chapter is that everyone is meant to have different gifts, because they are all important. Now, there are some that are going to be the head of the body in many ways. You have your pastors, you have your elders, you have your deacons, you have people in leadership, you have missionaries people in the forefront. But there are plenty of people who are going to serve in the background, and they're not any less than the people in the front. And that's something that a lot of people struggle with, is, well, I'm not as gifted as other people. God wants you to use whatever he gave you for his glory. You may not be the best at everything. You may not be famous. You may not be rich. You may not You may not get all the accolades that you're due, but that's not why we do it, right? We do it for God's glory. We're not here to please men. We're not here to please people. And if we are, we are actively sinning because of our pride. We need to avoid that behavior. Instead, we just need to be happy to serve the Lord. That the Lord has use for us. He doesn't need us, but he wants us to work in his service. And that is a privilege that we should not take lightly. So I'm not going to go through all the different stuff that's listed here. There is a lot to cover in here, but it would take a long time to break everything down. But what he does say is that you should desire the greater gifts. And what are the greater gifts? He says, apostles, prophets, teachers, miracles, gifts of healing, so on. Are all these still in effect today? Yes, yes they are. People still get healed. People still speak in tongues. There are some that exaggerate it and are not speaking from the Spirit. It's all for show. But speaking in tongues is a real thing. I say that as someone who grew up Baptist. And for a Baptist to speak in tongues is uncommon. 
And so this usually frowned upon. But it's not about these little denominations that we've made for ourselves. That's all legalism and that's all pharisaic. What does the Bible say? That's what ultimately matters. And the Bible says that speaking in tongues is a spiritual gift. Paul does describe in chapter 14 that there are checks and balances to make sure that it is legitimate because there are people who will say some random stuff and say, oh, it's speaking in the Spirit. And there was no one to interpret it, and therefore it's false. So you got to be careful with what you listen to. It's much better to have spiritual discernment about things and to look in the Word of God for wisdom rather than just to dismiss something because it doesn't align with what you think is right. The Bible tells you what's right, and that's what we need to follow. So in the order it mentions things, it says apostles. The apostles no longer exist today. This is not something we can necessarily aspire to. Because what does it mean to be an apostle? An apostle is someone who witnessed Jesus Christ physically, who was with him in the flesh. Those people don't exist today. The closest example you would have would be a pastor. Then it would say prophets. Now, let's talk about this one, because we've mentioned this in other episodes in the past, but being a prophet doesn't mean that you necessarily tell the future. If anyone publicly speaks the Word of God, your Sunday school teacher, your pastor, a deacon, so on and so forth, those are prophets. A prophet is anyone who represents God and speaks his words in truth, with accuracy. That is a prophet. So in this world, we have lots of prophets, and we also have a lot of false prophets. That's why we have to listen to the content of what is being said. Quality over quantity. So then after he talks about the spiritual gifts, he goes into chapter 13, which is what we call the love chapter. It is all about how important love is. In the Greek, there are three common ways that they would talk about love. Three distinct Greek words that describe love, but different kinds of love. Now, in the English language, it's kind of watered down. We have just one word, love. But they have three. They have eros, which is like a sexual, romantic, physical love. You have phileo, which is a brotherly love, you know, love of friends and family, so on and so forth. And then you have agape. Agape is the word that best characterizes God and what he manifested in the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. So it is more than just affection, like phileo. It is more than just attraction in eros. It is a sacrificial, unselfish love of someone. For example, Christ's love for us. We didn't deserve his love, but he didn't want anything from us in return. He loved us first, even though we didn't love him back. That is what it means to have agape love. This is what we should be having as Christians, with each other and with our Lord. So he shows here that all these things are empty if there's no love in it. And I think this is a trend that the church is moving in, this one right here, 
where it says in verse 3, If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not love, it profits me nothing. Well, I donate a lot of money to charity. Okay, great. Well, you know, I work really hard in church. I put a lot of hours in. I do a lot of efforts. But I just want the attention. I do it because I feel like I have to, not because I want to. Well, that's wrong. That's not love. And it will profit you nothing. You see, there's a difference between being feeling like you, you're doing something out of compulsion versus wanting to do something. And that's another thing that the church tends to get wrong as well. We need volunteers to get things done in church. There's no denying that. But at the same time, churches have a bad habit of latching on to somebody and not letting go. As if the responsibility that you have volunteered to take is a lifelong office. Some people get stuck, and they are feeling like they have to be forced to serve in something that they don't want to do. That's not the spirit of what the church should be like. We should be, if we love the Lord, we'd want to serve Him. We want to be sensitive to His call for us and what He wants us to do. And then we do that thing with joy. Not just do it because I see a void and I need to fill it, and I hate being here every day. That's not what it's about. If your heart is not in it, it is empty, according to God. And then with love, at the forefront of what we do, there should be growth. There should be maturity. He shows us that in verse 11 as being stages of growth. When he was a child, he thought like a child, he spoke like a child, he acted like a child. And then as he got older, he began to grow, not only physically, but also mentally. His maturity increased. His knowledge and wisdom increased, so on and so forth. Spiritually, we need to be the same way. Right now, we don't see very clearly because we have a glimpse of who God is because he is invisible, and we only have a glimpse of who Jesus is because of what he's written in his word, and he is not with us on earth anymore. We see it in a mirror dimly. We can still see, but we can't make out what we're going to look like at the end. But then we will one day meet him face to face. And when that day comes, it will be glorious, and we will be like him. Chapter 14 describes the superiority of prophecy over tongues. The speaking of tongues is important in some circles. And however, like I was saying, there are some denominations, especially the Pentecostal movement, where they take this way too far. There is no Holy Spirit blessing the activity and therefore is really anti-biblical in a lot of ways. And so at the same time, like I said, I grew up Baptist, and Baptists say, well, you don't, we don't speak in tongues here. Well, I'm not saying that's correct either way. Then that is something we can definitely debate, because that's hotly debated in, in where I am right now. I have family and friends who are Methodist, who are Presbyterian, who are Episcopalian, who are... Pentecostal, and we all have different views on this one. So I don't claim to have the right answer, 
And I have some knowledge of this, but I don't have a deep knowledge of this. So I'm going to refrain from drawing a conclusion here. But what I do know is that spiritual gifts state that speaking of tongues is a spiritual gift. And it is something that is truly a blessing if it teaches the church. It does show here that if it's something that no one can interpret, it doesn't help anybody. You just look like you're crazy. But if there is an interpreter, and that interpreter is relaying words of God that will edify the church, that is the whole point of it. And if that is not happening, then it is an empty activity. So you be the judge of that. You use your conscience on that particular thing. And then we go to chapter 15, which is regularly called the resurrection chapter. This is a glorious chapter, especially with what's coming in the end. So the very first thing it talks about is the complete encapsulation of the gospel. If you don't really know how to present the gospel, this is a great starting point. Verses 3 through 8 are excellent starting points for us to understand the complexities as well as the main focal points of the gospel. Because it was important that Christ is who he is, but it was all according to Scripture. That's important addition there that we cannot ignore. It was a it was a it was according to Scripture. This was not just something he made up on his own. This was foretold for centuries that it was going to be this way. And he fulfilled everything that was written centuries ago by different people. Not only that, but just like the four Gospels that we read, there were many eyewitnesses of his resurrection to where no one could say, oh, it really didn't happen. It was a mass hallucination, or these people are conspiring to exalt this man who's really dead, but try to pass him off as being alive. No, these are various people of different backgrounds, different walks of life, some of them don't even know each other, and they all saw the risen Lord. This is verifiable proof that Christ is indeed deity. He rose from the dead, just as he said he would. That is divine. Then he goes into elaborating on the resurrection. First of all, he affirms that there is a resurrection. We should not be the Sadducees of this argument. There is a resurrection, and people as far back as Genesis knew this. People knew in the book of Job that this was the way it was. It has long since been an understanding, even before the law was even written, that there was going to be a resurrection. Not only that, but the resurrection is what gives us hope. The rest of this world doesn't have hope, because they think that this is it. After they die, there's nothing else. And so they are most to be pitied. But yet we believe in the risen Lord. And he will take us to an eternal kingdom of glory. We have a hope that they don't. Then he talks about the resurrection body. So we got a glimpse of what that is going to be like when Jesus was risen. He's able to appear and disappear at will. He seems that he doesn't have any blood in his body anymore. 
because he still has this holes on his hand. He had the hole in his side. They told him to put his hand in his side, and yet there's no blood on them, so it was a bloodless body. In other words, the body that Jesus had after he rose from the dead was kind of like a preview to us as to what we could expect from our bodies in the future. Because it mentions here that we will all be changed, and that's a mystery that he reveals here in verse 51. He says he's going to tell us a mystery, something that was not understood since long past. We will all be changed instantly into our glorified bodies. If we are alive when Jesus returns, we will be taken up into the air, and then poof, we will be turned into our glorified bodies. But if we are dead, then our bodies will rise from the ground, and it will be changed likewise. And we will join the Lord, and then we will forever be with him. How fantastic that is. And this body is perfect. It is immortal. We are going to be eternal with God forever. And it will be a supernatural body, something that we've never experienced before, but it seems like it will be familiar. How is any of this possible? Because God has conquered death through Jesus Christ. Death was defeated. Satan lost. He has no power over those that belong to Christ. That's why he hates us so much. Because it mentions here in verse 56 that the sting of death is sin. And since we have been forgiven from our sins, death no longer has any hold on us just like it doesn't have any hold on Christ, because he was sinless. So you see how we share in his nature now, and that is a wonderful thing. Then he reminds us that everything that we do for the glory of God, as well as our belief in this resurrection, should be our solid hope for the future. And not only that, because we have that solid hope for the future, that should put some urgency and some motivation into what we do today. What we do for God is never a waste of time. We are storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Everything you do for God's glory, he remembers. You may not get the recognition from people, but God is keeping account of everything that you have poured your heart into in his name. Because you love him, because you want to serve him, you want to obey him, and you want to love your neighbor as yourself. He keeps track. So let's be comforted by that today, that everything you do is not in vain. And with that, that's all I have for today. Thank you for listening. I'm Ryan, and we'll see you next time. Take care, and God bless you.